Well, it is good to be back. It's, uh, <laughs> I believe that's the longest period of time that I've spent away from the pulpit in 20 years. And so uh, it's, uh, I don't know if it's good for you, but it's good for me. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's start with a quick word of prayer. Father, as we open your word today. Speak to us. Speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Do what only you can. As you open your book to our hearts and minds by your spirit. Father, help us to engage our our rational faculties as you have given them to us but protect us from an intellectualism that judges your word and neglects to recognize that your word judges us. In this moment, Father, we invite you. We know that you are here as you have promised to be. We rest in that promise, but we we need to know that our hearts welcome you. May our time in your word and the time that we spend singing and praying and encouraging one another bring a smile to your face, Lord. Now break us, convict us, change us. Where it is needed, Lord, crush us. Break our hearts that we might see Jesus and know you and find life. And let let us recognize that our Savior is meek and humble in heart. Smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a bruised reed he will not break. And so, Father, we ask that you would lift us up where, where we are downtrodden, that we might find strength in you. Teach us. Teach us to rest. To rest in you. That you might lift us up on eagle's wings. These things we pray in the name of your Son. All right. Well, it's a little bit hard for me to read with tears in my eyes, but <clears throat> have you ever uh, have you ever wrestled with questions like, "How can I know that I'm sure that, for sure that I'm saved?" Have you ever wrestled with, "Is it possible to lose my salvation?" Or how about, "What must I do to be saved?" Or even, "Saved from what? Do I even need saving?" All these questions and more really center on the nature of the gospel, the gospel itself. And that word gospel means good news. Those questions center on the gospel, and they center on the core of what it actually, really, truly means to be a Christian. Sometimes I think we take that for granted. It's been a passion of mine for a very long time to... uh, to help people understand and find real life in Christ. 
recently, I've been deeply troubled, as I've seen both on a broad scale and, and also locally. Far too many Christians live without confidence in their salvation. Unsure of how to have that, that blessed assurance that the old hymn talks about. I'm at least as troubled, and, and maybe more so, by the number of professing Christians and, and even church members, sometimes even church leaders, who don't seem to have a clue about what being a Christian actually is. We talk about it, we use the words, but I don't know if we really know what we mean. We too often confuse it with morality and, and, and getting my life turned around or being a good citizen and, and a good American and <clears throat> maybe serving at church or even being baptized and, and so on. Well, believe it or not, the Lord has seen fit to give us a perfect opportunity to clear up some of this stuff by providing a wonderful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the book of Numbers. Now, you might not have thought about the gospel of Jesus Christ being presented in the book of Numbers, but we're going to take a look at it today. So after a month away from this series, we're going to jump back in. <clears throat> we're going to jump back into our In the Wilderness series today. Uh, and then we're going to step back for the next uh, two weeks to focus on the events of, of what we often call Holy Week or Passion Week uh, as the fulfillment of what we're going to be talking about today. All right, so... Uh, Let's, let's dive in, but first let's catch everybody up. Some of you may not have even been here when we, uh, when we left the series, so, uh, so let's catch up. Um, as we look at the book of Numbers, and, and we call the series In the Wilderness because the Hebrew name for this book is, uh, translates to In the Wilderness, which is much more apropos probably than Numbers, uh, but in any case, the book of Numbers opens about a year after uh, Moses has led the children of Israel out of, uh, out of bondage in Egypt. The Lord delivered them, Moses led them, and this happens back in Exodus. So he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then uh, we spend the, the book of Exodus with God revealing to his people, revealing to the Israelites, how a people set apart to a holy God must live and conduct themselves. Now, they're about to leave Sinai at the beginning of the book of Numbers and enter into the land of inheritance uh, that the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the first 10 chapters, everything's good. As the Lord prepares them uh, for what is ahead and he orders every aspect of their lives, their daily living, the, the structure of the nation, the way they lay out the camp, he orders everything in their lives around himself he has them put the tabernacle at the center of the camp the tabernacle or the tent of meeting which later on will be replaced by the temple but God has established this tent this this temporary dwelling where he would meet with Moses where he would manifest himself his presence at this tabernacle and it had been outside the camp and now, as he prepares his people to go into the promised land, he has them move the tabernacle to the center. And they arrange all of the camps so that they, all of the tribes where they are, uh, are the, encamped there together, they are facing the tabernacle. 
everything in the life of God's people centers on the presence of God himself. He establishes the special duties of the tabernacle to provide the means for a sinful people to worship and fellowship with the holy God. Even as the priests speak a priestly benediction over the people to stamp his name on the people. We see that in number six, and and that's been our closing benediction. It won't be today. I'm going to change things a little bit today. But that's been our closing benediction throughout this series because that's what God called the priests to speak over, to pray over the people of Israel, to plant his name, to stamp his name on them, much like in the Pixar film Toy Story when Andy writes his name on his special toys. This is my special possession. And God calls Israel his special possession. And so the priests pray over them as a regular benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And this is what God had instructed them specifically to say. The Lord set his people up with everything they need to enter the fullness of his promise. But then in chapter 11, they finally start to move out and the grumbling begins almost immediately. God provides for their needs, but the people complain about his provision. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, we, we had it so much better before in Egypt, when, you know, when we were slaves. But we ate better. We didn't have this manna. And, oh, we're walking around in the desert and, you know. We don't, get to, we, we don't get any Wi-Fi signal out here. It's terrible, you know, no cell coverage at all. They probably didn't say that. But they would have because they grumbled about everything, it seemed. Right from jump. As, as soon as they start to move, they start to feel the friction, and they start to complain. The Lord judges their rebellion. Moses intercedes for them. The Lord shows mercy. And they return, at least for a moment. And that's the pattern that we see. Now this pattern culminates in chapters 13 and 14 as they reach the edge of the promised land and they send scouts. You remember the story, you know, the 12 spies that go in, 10 were bad and 2 were good. And They send the scouts in to check it out. And the scouts come back and say, wow, it's everything that God promised. This is amazing. It's fantastic. But... They also see warriors and giants there. And they actually reject the very thing they've been longing for. The very thing that God had promised. Not only to them, but for generations. All the way back in Genesis 12, he promises to Abram, before he even changes his name to Abraham, that he's going to make a mighty nation, he's going to give him land, and, 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 excuse me, multiply him all nations would be blessed through him they get to the door of it after God had delivered them out of the most powerful nation known to man at the time that he had done all these miraculous signs and wonders he split the sea so they could walk across on dry land and then he drowned Pharaoh's army in that same sea And then, it was just mind-blowing to me. As he has them leave, the Lord, not the Israelites, not Moses, no negotiations, no threats, God has the, the Egyptians 
give them all their stuff. Here, take my gold, take my jewels, take my TV. You know, they're just giving them stuff. And they reject God's promise because there are some tribal warriors. Oh, they're big. How big is God? Oh, he hasn't provided for us. Dude, I gave you the wealth of Egypt. I'm giving you food from the sky. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumble, grumble. The very thing God promised, the very thing they were longing for, they reject. They want to go back to Egypt. Like so many of us, like so many of us, they would rather go back to the bondage they used to live in than trust God and live free in Him. So God judges that generation. He sentences them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation is gone. And then, God says, He will fulfill His promise to Israel through their children. This brings us to the core reality for the book of Numbers. In your programs, you can mark this down if you haven't already got this committed to your mind. If anybody asks you, you know now for sure what the book of Numbers is about. You say, Pastor spent 17 years going through the book of Numbers. But you know what it's about. Here it is. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. That's the summary statement for the main idea for the whole book. And it's crucial for us to understand that if we're going to understand what the author wants us to know and how he expects us to respond and be changed. As we work through this, this in the wilderness book, every part of it contributes to that melodic line. It all speaks into it. God is always faithful to his covenant promises. But his covenant people have a tendency to be unfaithful. As one of my favorite hymns says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the one we love. And there are consequences for that. But it never, ever changes the nature of our merciful, faithful God. So fast forward to where we are today in chapter 21. The wandering is over. Moses' sister Miriam and his brother Aaron, the high priest, are now dead. And God has told Moses that he would bring God's people to the land of promise, but he himself would not be allowed to enter into it. The children of the wilderness generation are about to inherit the land, but a tragic and familiar thing happens on the way to Canaan. Let's read the first nine verses of Numbers 21 together. So if you haven't already turned to Numbers 21, I invite you to do that. It's the fourth book of the Bible, chapter 21. It's right between 20 and 22. First nine verses. 
going to ask you to do something I don't normally do during the, the sermon. We normally do this only at the beginning of the service. And the reason that we stand when we read at the beginning of the service is a symbolic gesture to remind ourselves through this physical act of standing, much like we do for the national anthem or the pledge, that we revere God's word. There's nothing legalistic about it. There's no rule that you have to stand to read the Bible. Although sometimes if you have a struggle falling asleep when you're reading, it can be a good practice. But today, just to remind ourselves that this is the living, active word of God and we revere it. Let's stand together as I read these first nine verses. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the, <coughs> excuse me, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is the word of the Lord. Receive it in faith. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we look at this, there's a, there's a structure to the writing, and you can see the structure in the way the story sets up into two distinct contrasting scenes. The author is, is giving us these scenes together. It almost, <coughs> on the one hand, uh, might seem like a throwaway, uh, in a sense, to have this little blurb about uh, the king of Arad, this Canaanite king, and they go and they, they ask for the Lord's help, and he helps, and... and Wipes them, they you know, uh, completely wipe them out. <coughs> Pardon me. Apparently, my voice isn't used to being up here anymore. <coughs> and and then the second scene, we see the grumbling and the snakes, and and it, it's it's a pretty stark contrast. In this first scene, what we're seeing is the children of Israel doing exactly what they should be doing. 
what they have been designed to do. In fact, what they've been created to do. They're trusting God in their moment of need. They come across a king who has already captured some of them. He, he doesn't want them coming through. They've, he's heard the stories about them. It's a big group of people traveling for a long time. People know. <clears throat> They've already come to Edom, a brother nation, descendants of Esau. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to have to see if my sister has any cough drops. Oh, Stacy, you're a winner. See, we're a team here. We all work together, one body in Christ. Some have the gift of cough drops. Okay. <clears throat> so they come across this king who has amassed his army and come against them, doesn't want him to come through, is going to shut it down. He takes some of them captive. Rather than doing, which their parents had done uh, when they first uh, rejected God's promise and they decided they wanted to go back to Egypt and God called them on it, sentenced them to wander in the wilderness and they're like, oh, no, 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 uh, we changed our mind. We're going to go in. And Moses said, what are you doing? You, you're going in without God. He's already told you what's going to happen here. No, we're going to do it anyway. doesn't end well. They get routed. Now, the children come. They face this adversary. And it's a very short story. They just simply say, Lord, we need your help. If you'll do this, we will put these people, their whole cities and nation, we'll, we'll put them under the ban, under the curse. In other words, they'll be dedicated to the Lord through total destruction. That's what the, the Hebrew means, and the NIV renders it uh, rather, rather brusquely as, as a total destruction. That's good. They keep their promise. They trust God, and they follow through with obedience. And the very next sentence, the very next sentence, what do we see? <laughs> they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. So they're going down. They're taking the long way because they've got to go around Edom. Um, we saw that in a previous chapter. But the people grew impatient. That's the second sentence. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. And once again, grumbling, failure to trust God, unbelief. They, they must have had a certain amount of fear when they saw the, the armies of Arad. And the fear wasn't a problem. The fear drove them to their God. Just a little side note here. Do you realize that that's the purpose of fear? Whenever you feel the anxiety and the struggles of this life, the devil's going to use that to try to shipwreck your faith, but God is using it to shape you. When you feel those things, when you feel like life is out of control, that's the Lord saying, yeah, it's out of your control. You better get on board with this. You need to embrace the reality that you have no control over anything of significance. Boy, we hate to hear that as Americans. You should be afraid. Be very afraid. At the same time, God is saying, 
It's never out of my control. Come to me. That fear is an invitation to run to daddy. To say, Lord, there's an army out there. And if you will deliver them into my hands, I will lay all my enemies at your feet that you receive the glory and honor. I can't do it myself. But you can do all things. So I lift my eyes up, not to the mountains. I get no help from the mountains. I get no help from the universe and nature and my strength. My help comes from the Lord. And Lord, I need you to rescue me and to give me life. Back to the text. We see the two contrasting scenes. They do everything right, and then they do everything wrong. And their unfaithful choice to grumble against God, to let the fear not drive them to Him, but to let the complaints, the frustration, the anxiety, the blocked goals drive them away from and against Him. God is still God. This brings us to the core reality for this passage. It's in your programs. It's on the screen. You should be able to to get this into your mind. As we look at this text, as we understand everything that we're going to talk about today, this truth is the theme of this text and it should be in the background of everything we're thinking. Sin brings death, but God grants life to those who embrace his merciful provision. Sin brings death, but God grants life to those who embrace his merciful provision. I've got three more sermons in my head right now that I want to preach just about this idea, and I'm going to restrain myself, but I will say that one of the problems that we have in the modern church is we become so concerned, you might say seeker-driven, we become so concerned with what people think about God and Jesus and the gospel that we change it to make it more palatable. We don't want to sing songs about the blood of Christ. We don't, the, the cross, that's an ugly thing. We don't, we might wear a nice little shiny one around our neck, but we don't want to talk about that crucifixion stuff too much. That's ugly. We want to talk about a God who loves everyone unconditionally. Here's the problem. That God is not in the Bible. Just put that out of your vocabulary right now about this unconditional love that God has for everybody. Because we can only think that, we can only say that when we don't actually read the scriptures. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his son. But the same scriptures that tell us this also say God hates the wicked. He is angry with the wicked every day. The picture of God's wrath against the unbelieving is so stark and so ubiquitous throughout the scripture that to neglect the bad news of God's wrath 
completely undermines the message of the Bible. And without the bad news, the good news isn't even good news. It means nothing to be saved if we don't know what we are being saved from. It means nothing for me to be forgiven if I haven't done anything wrong, right? Have you ever had somebody come up and you know, tell you, hey, you know, I forgive you. I'm like, you forgive me? <laughs> you forgive me, right? You're the one with the problem. I didn't do anything wrong. How dare you forgive me? We might do that in our personal relationships, but we tend to neglect to realize that we actually do that with God when we think we don't need for him to save us, to forgive us. I digress. Let's, uh, let's press on here. Sin brings death, but God grants life to those who embrace his merciful position, uh, provision. I just spent half the sermon time that I have here on something that's not really part of it. So, anyhow. <laughs> I'm back. Now, understand that, that as we look at this passage, we would never have understood this as a messianic prophecy or a foreshadowing of what we know as the gospel if Jesus had not made the connection for us centuries later in John 3. Turn there if you would. We're going to be looking at John 3. But, but the rabbis that would come later, even, even the prophets, did not look at this and say, oh, that's clearly talking about what the Lord intends to do later with Messiah. This connection gets made by Jesus in the New Testament. So in John chapter 3, um, Jesus is meeting under cover of darkness with a well-known Pharisee uh, who is, uh, his name is Nicodemus. He is uh, referred to by Jesus as the teacher of Israel. He is one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin. And uh, Jesus is, has just been explaining to him uh, that you must be born again. All right, he's talking to Nicodemus. He's just explained that a man has to be reborn, born from above, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Nicodemus doesn't seem to get it. Then Jesus brings out this image from the book of Numbers. Check out verses 14 and 15 specifically. I'm going to read through 18 at least, <clears throat> depending on how excited I get. Uh, John 3, starting with verse uh, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, pretty clear, right? We know exactly what he's talking about. We just read it. We're here in Numbers 21. What has been obscure for centuries, God did something in his people. That's clear. God delivered his people. He made merciful provision to, uh, to bring them life, even though they were sentenced to death because of their sin. But now Jesus is clearing this up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Sin brings death, but God grants life to those who embrace His merciful provision. So as we view this text through the lens of our core reality, and also through the lens of Jesus' words here in John 3, a clear picture of the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death in our place, a clear picture of the gospel begins to emerge. We can see it here in four parts. First off, mark this down, everyone who sins has earned death. Everyone who sins has earned death. After, <clears throat> excuse me, after all the Lord had done for them, and all that they should have learned from their, from their parents' unfaithful choices, the people grumbled against God and Moses. That set them in opposition to their creator, the source of life, the one they were created for. Just like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, their sin brought death. This time in the form of venomous snakes, or as the ESV puts it, fiery serpents. Interestingly, the Hebrew word there for fiery, flaming, burning is the same word uh, for the, the burning angels in Isaiah 6, seraphs. Uh, that, it's the same Hebrew word there, or Hebrew root. So this, this picture of these venomous snakes or, or fiery serpents is, this is the curse that their sin brought. It is the wages their sin earned. Everyone who sins has earned death. It was not a random plague. It was what they earned. So our, our memory verse today is Romans 6.23, and it points out <clears throat> excuse me, that the wages, the earnings of sin is death. Everyone who sins, and when I say sins, that involves anything that supplants God as the Lord of our lives, everyone who sins earns death. Everyone who sins earns death. It is deserved. God's wrath against us is just. It's right. The news gets worse. You and I each one of us, without exception, whether you are the, the person in the room that nobody respects because you've lived a terrible life and everybody knows it and, and you're ashamed of the things that you've done <clears throat> and you know, your mama's ashamed of you, your daddy doesn't want your name associated with him because you, you know, you've, just been, you've been out on the, on the edge of life. Or you're that goody-two-shoes, Sunday school kid, always got straight A's, you know, tattled on your brothers, you know, all, all those things. Uh, I, I don't know. I, served in the church, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. You and I are sinners. Therefore, we, not just these people then, we have earned death, just like they did. Whenever we do our thing instead of God's thing, we usurp his throne. 
We, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Cough drop doesn't do any good if you choke on it. <coughs> Come on, Zyger, don't be a rookie. <coughs> Whenever we do our thing instead of God's thing, we usurp his throne. We supplant him as Lord in our lives. This is cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul referred to it, against the Most High. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So death is our destiny. That's where we are, all of us, dead men walking. All of us spiritually dead in our sin and doomed to eternal death when we leave this body. Let that darkness just kind of hang in your mind for a moment. That's the bad news. That's our natural state. You don't have to really mess up to be a sinner who deserves death. You simply have to be. Because we live as we think we should live instead of being surrendered to the purpose of God for which he created us. But notice what happens in our text when everybody's dying. They realize what they've done, and they get desperate. Right? They traveled. They grumbled. They complained against God. They complained against his appointed servant Moses. Verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many died. But in verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, you know, this is unfair. God's mistreating us. No, that's not what they said. They came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They realized what they had done. They realized that they needed help. Mark this down. Our only hope is to seek mercy we do not deserve. <clears throat> Our only hope is to seek mercy we do not deserve. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Question. Did they sin against God? Let me try again. Question. Did they sin against God? Did their sin earn them death? Did they receive death? Well, so far, yes. Right? Trick question, right? They did. Many of them are they're dying. People are dying all around them. My kid just got bit by this venomous snake, and he died. My mother just got bit by this venomous snake, and she died. God, save us. There's nothing I can do to fix this. I don't have a snake bite kit that can deal with these fiery serpents. I sinned. We sinned. We have no hope. 
he's going to wipe us out. If something doesn't happen to intervene, we will all die. So what do they do? In their desperation, they seek mercy they don't deserve. They don't come and say, "Uh, we're God's people. Don't you think we deserve a second chance? They don't say, doesn't God know we're doing our best, but our, you know, we're just weak in the flesh. We were overcome. They don't do any of that. There's no negotiation. There is a, 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 a spiritual desperation. In this moment, there is a temporal desperation. We have no hope unless God fixes this. Notice, just a little side note, they couldn't come to God directly because of sin. They needed a mediator. In this case, Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of that role of mediator. There is now one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so when our sin prevents us from having fellowship with God, Jesus intercedes for us. Moving forward. Our only hope is to seek mercy we do not deserve. They can't fix their situation. They've earned judgment. (coughs) Excuse me. They've earned death. And this judgment has fallen upon them. You and I are in the same boat. We can't fix our situation. God's curse is upon every sinner. And we cannot escape it. And we cannot bargain our way out of it. There's no negotiation. There's no reasoning that says, Lord, you know... You know, we deserve better, don't we? I thought you had unconditional love for us. I thought, you know, everything's cool. We could do what we want. And, you know, you're not too upset about our little sin. And God doesn't care who I sleep with. And you don't care about how I, how I talk to people and, and all these different things. None of that. Just death. That's it. Sentence has been passed. You committed the crime. You're done. Just like them, our only hope is to seek mercy we do not deserve. We need to recognize that we are doomed, literally damned. We need to turn, to repent, and cry out, We have sinned against you. Lord, have mercy. And mercy is not ever something we deserve. That's the nature of it. Whenever we think things like God knows I'm doing my best, you know, I think God weighs things on the scale and maybe I've done more bad than good and he knows I'm trying. Or, you know, it was just a little sin. It's really, you know, it's, it was a little white lie. It's really not that big of a deal. Or, well, at least I didn't do fill in the blank, whatever somebody else did or whatever I could have done, you know. But, you know, I didn't go as far, you know. Whenever we do those things, whenever we think those thoughts, hear me now, we are not repentant. Those are not repentant thoughts. We are not seeking God's mercy. We're seeking a deal. Rather, what we're doing is we're acting like the bratty child 
who thinks mom and dad owe him something. God owes us nothing. Nothing but the death that we've earned with our sin. We are guilty. We have been convicted and sentenced, and our only hope is to turn from our sin to our Lord and seek profoundly undeserved mercy. That's pretty heavy so far, right? Fiery serpents will do that to you. Hell is a serious thing. But the Lord loves to show mercy. He loves to pour out compassion on his children. There's verse after verse after verse in the scriptures reminding us of this. But don't you dare think for one moment that you deserve it. He owes us nothing. But our merciful God does offer us a way to pass from death to life. Notice this. God offers only one solution to save us from sin's curse. God offers only one solution to save us from sin's curse. The Lord had Moses make a bronze snake, the very image of sin's curse upon them. In other words, the emblem of suffering and shame. When they looked at that snake, what they were seeing was a representation of the death their sin had earned. The curse lifted up on a pole, which is a picture of what we see in other Old Testament references, that cursed is every, every man hung from a tree. Jesus hung on a tree for us. He was lifted up on a pole, so to speak. Just as he described in John 3, he uses kind of a play on words because that same lifted up can also mean exalted. And it's very clear, if, you, if you've been with us in our study on Wednesdays and Fridays, that Jesus sees what will be his hour of glory and exaltation as the hour he is lifted up in crucifixion. That's when his time has come. But that's next week's sermon. God offers only one solution to save us from sin's curse. He didn't give them other options. He didn't say, well, you could check out the snake or, you know, you could, you could try and, you know, suck the poison out or, you know, all these different things. I have no doubt because of human nature. I, I think it's, it's, it's a reasonable presumption, reasonable presumption that Many of them tried many things. Tried to do whatever they could. Let's make a poultice. Let's try to save our, our loved ones. Because we do that. We try to find ways in our own strength to get around the curse. To fix the problem. But God offers only one solution to save us from sin's curse. So he has Moses make this emblem of suffering and shame and lifted up on a pole. Anyone who was bitten could look at the image of their suffering and shame and live. That's it. That's all. No further action was necessary, nor would it be acceptable. They could not do anything. Just look and live. 
In the same way, the Lord has provided only one way for us to be saved from sin and death. His Son, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us that there's <clears throat> excuse me, no other name given that can save us. Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Real quick, turn back to John 3. I'm going to read that again. We've walked through this enough that as you read it the second time, hopefully these pictures will jump out at you. Jesus makes this point abundantly clear. God offers only one solution to save us from sin's curse. That is Jesus himself. He makes the connection with this event in Numbers. There was only one option, look and live. He connects himself with this emblem of suffering and shame lifted up on the pole. And he explains it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, verse 14, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes, look and live, may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Listen, God loved the Israelites, his people. They were his covenant people and he would keep his promises. Nothing could stop that from happening. And yet, under the curse of sin, many of them still died. Many of them died and were cut off from their people and were turned away from God outside of the covenant. God loved the world, so he provided an option but the only ones who get to be a part of his family are those who take the option. The only ones who are brought from death to life are those who place their faith in God's merciful provision. Who look and live. 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know this. Keep it in your mind. 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Boy, we love that, don't we? We love not being condemned. We should. It's a joyful thing. This is the good news. <clears throat> God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How? By having him lifted up on a pole as the curse of sin on our behalf. He will come again. And his purpose will be different. Notice verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Notice the connection. Believe. Embrace, God, embrace God's only provision and live. But. But. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Already sentenced to death already earned death with sin, already snake bit, if you will. Death is coming. It is our destiny because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If your hope for a relationship with God, for eternal life, 
for heaven rather than eternal condemnation and hell. If your hope is in being part of real life community church, you have no hope. If your hope is living a good life, you have no hope. If your hope is that you were baptized once upon a time and and you know all the Sunday school songs, you have no hope. Christ alone is our hope. Every single one of us Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Every single one of us is appointed to die once and then to face judgment. And when we face judgment, when we stand before God, we will either receive justice, which means if there is any sin ever in us, we will be condemned. And it's just. And that's all of us. Or, instead of justice, we receive mercy. Because someone else paid our penalty. And if our answer, when we stand before God, of why should you let me, why should should I let you in, if our answer is, I deserve only hell and death, but Jesus has offered me life and I've trusted him. If I have embraced God's only merciful provision for my salvation, then when he looks at me, he no longer sees the sin, he only sees Jesus. And he calls us his son and his daughter. This is our hope. In Numbers 21, we see this same picture. The bronze serpent on the pole was a picture of what God would do for us in Jesus. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you're still in John, it's a short term, but I'm going to have you turn to one last passage today. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Still going to the right past John. You're going to get past uh, Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters, and then the Galatian uh, letter, and then you find Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Understand that we have all been sentenced to death, but God's grace offers us life by faith in Christ. First 10 verses, Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. As for you, you were dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, breaking of the law, and sins, falling short of God's mark, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the Spirit who is now at work in in those who are disobedient. Who's he talking to? He's writing this letter to the church. He's writing to Christians. All of you Christians, all of you saints, he's already called them holy ones, God's holy people in Ephesus. All of you holy people, you used to be dead 
in your sin just like everybody else. The worst person you can think of, you're in the same state as them. Verse 3, all of us, referring to himself, the apostles, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We supplanted God and followed our own selves. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. God brings us from death to life. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace undeserved favor expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it's the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast you can't earn it you can't negotiate you can't do anything to unearn the death that you earned someone awaiting the death penalty for murder doesn't get off with community service. You can't say, well, you know, I've done a lot of nice things ever since, and I bought all those Girl Scout cookies. You know, I, you know, I, I think you should, you know, commute my sentence. It's not how it works. You did the crime. You've been convicted. That's where we are. It's by grace you've been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works follow the grace, the salvation. God's grace offers us life by faith in Christ. What does this mean? Last point, mark this down. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone receives life. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone receives life real life. That's why we named the church that, actually. It's not that all this life we see and perceive is reality. It's that there is a greater reality. There is a life abundant and free in Christ. A life abundant and full and everlasting. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone receives real life. In, in, in Numbers 21, everyone sentenced to die for their sinful unbelief had only to believe God enough to embrace His merciful provision for their salvation. <clears throat> That's all they had to do. Just believe that what God said is true. Snake on a pole, look at it, live. That's it. It wasn't the looking... The looking was the expression of the believing. You believed God, this is the hope, this is the salvation. Therefore, because I believe, I look to the snake. Now many of them, it's a big group of people, right? Many of them, I'm sure, could not see the snake. But when it was lifted up, they looked to it. It's an expression of their faith. Faith manifests itself in obedience. 
All they had to do was embrace his merciful provision for their salvation and they would pass from death to life to look and live. Everyone who did that was saved. Think about that. Everyone who did that was saved. No exceptions. Nobody looked at the snake and didn't get healed. Nobody looked at the snake and God said, well, I I don't know. I don't know if you looked right. You didn't didn't really look the right way. No, if you embraced God's provision and you looked, you received life. You passed from the death you already earned to the life he mercifully offers. No exceptions. John 1.12 says that whoever receives Jesus Christ by faith receives the right to become God's child. It's grace. Grace. Undeserved favor. Nothing of me, all of him. And that grace is appropriated by trusting him, by embracing Jesus as God's merciful provision for our salvation. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Jesus said in John 6 that anyone who comes to him in faith, he will never cast out. Nobody. Nobody comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I've sinned, have mercy. And he says, Nah, I don't think so. You've sinned too many times. You've sinned too deeply. That can't be forgiven. We measure sin according to our standards. It's a very humanistic idol, this picture that we, that we have of some sins are worse than others because they hurt people differently. You're missing the point. Different sins certainly do have different weight in this world, for sure. Stealing a pack of bubble gum is not the same as killing someone. However, all sin that usurps God's throne every time I do my thing as if I get to call the shots instead of God's thing as if he is the Lord he actually is, every single time I do that, that is cosmic treason. That is a greater sin than anything we ever do to one another. When we begin to see it that way, reality takes shape. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you believe with your heart and confess openly that Jesus is the resurrected Lord, not in a vague general belief, but specifically in your own heart and life, that you will, not might, you will be saved. The message is clear. Look to him and live forever. All right, so... The gospel's been laid out for us. It's simple. It's clear. You're a sinner. You deserve death. You've earned it. You have no hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, offers one provision, and if you will just trust him and embrace that provision, you will pass from death to life, and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. That's why the good news is such good news. And without the bad news, it means nothing. So now what? What does that mean? Now, we've got different people in different places here, and I don't know where each of you are, but the Holy Spirit does. So maybe you'll hear yourself in this. Maybe you're, in, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I get it. This, it finally makes sense to me. I want to be saved. I, I, I never really got it before, 
I thought I had to, you know, clean up my act and be moral and all these kinds of things. And, and for the first time, I really get it. Though all I really need to do is recognize what I deserve is hell and what God offers me is life and heaven in Jesus by trusting him. And I want to embrace that. So what do I do? Repent. Seek mercy. The same things that we talked about. Just like they did. Lord, we sinned. Father, I am a sinner and I know that it, it, it breaks up this relationship I'm supposed to have with you. Don't try to make deals with him. Don't try to negotiate. Lord, if you'll save me, I'll, I'll, I'll become a monk or I'll go to Timbuktu as a missionary or whatever. He's not interested in your deals. Seek mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. Receive Christ. Embrace him as God's only provision. Lord, I believe that Jesus is the only answer, my only hope, and I'm hanging everything on him. And then confess him openly. That's the purpose of baptism, by the way. That's what baptism does. It's a public confession that I have died to myself and now I belong to Christ. I died with him, and we symbolize that by going under the water. We come back up out of the water symbolizing I've been raised to a new life in him. I have embraced Jesus as my only hope, my total life. Everything I have is in Christ alone and I will cling to that old rugged cross. That's Baptism is that confession. And it's, it's not only that, it's a daily confession that he is, he's in control. I won't be ashamed of him and I won't hide from it. And then simply begin to walk in the new life you have in Christ. He's doing the work. So if we mean it, like anything else, get up out of the chair and act like it. Go forward. Be his. That involves the, the growth that comes along afterwards. The things like covenant membership in the church, committing to the body, serving in the church, studying God's word, growing in grace and love, all of these good works that God's already prepared in advance for us to do, they don't save us. You don't earn anything. It's the natural outpouring of having a relationship with Christ. If you've never come to him, do that now. That's all. Okay, so maybe you're sitting there thinking, I've professed Christ maybe you're even a member of the church. But I just realized that I wasn't saved until this moment. I thought I was. I said the right words, but it just just clicked. The Holy Spirit has opened my eyes and I have not embraced Christ. I embraced religion. I embraced church. But I haven't embraced Christ. And I'm so embarrassed. What, what do I do? People are going to look at me funny now if I, if I admit this. You do the same thing as if you never saw him before. You repent. You confess. You seek mercy. You, you move forward in faith. Be open and honest about it. Don't hide it. Man, when we hide our sins, when we hide our failures, that's when the devil has the most power in our lives. Take the ammunition out of his gun. Put it all out on the table. Yeah, I, I just got it for the first time. I've been a member for 10 years, but I just 
got it. And now I'm a member of the true church because I received Jesus. Repent. Be honest and real. Okay, so what if I've done all that? I, I know I'm a Christian. I, I, well, I think I'm a Christian. I've said those words. I've done these things. But I lack the confidence and assurance of that salvation. I keep doubting my salvation. What do I do? First off, recognize that fears and doubts happen. They're part of the growth process. They're designed to drive you to Him. But unbelief is sin. Fears and doubts happen. Stop sweating it. doesn't matter. It's like rain. Rain happens. I can cry about it. It's still going to rain. I'm still going to have fears and doubts. I'm still going to have anxieties come up. When they come up, what do I do with them is the question. Take them to Him. Cast them on Him. And repent of unbelief. It's the unbelief that keeps us there. Take charge of your thoughts, demanding that your mind remember the words of Scripture and the promise of God. Look and live. Your salvation was never about your ability or strength or courage in the first place. Faith, trust, it's not a feeling. It's a choice to surrender your feelings to God and cast your cares on Him. Remind yourself of sound doctrine. That's why that catechism is such a useful thing. Remind yourself of what is true. Turn your heart to Christ alone. The hymns of the church are useful. They are helpful. Why? Same reason as catechism. It takes God's word. It puts it in a, in a manageable form and teaches our hearts the truths that you're going to forget from the sermons. Because if I ask you three hours from now what the sermon was about, a lot of you might not remember. But you'll all remember the songs we sang. We sing the hymns of the faith to drive the truth deep into us. Use that when you have doubts and fears and anxieties. When you doubt your salvation, cling to the old rugged cross. Cling to Christ alone. Turn your heart to Him. And nowhere else. Every single one of us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we need to cling to the old rugged cross We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day until we're face to face with our Lord and we exchange his cross for a crown. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I'm inadequate to the task of fully communicating the truth that you have for your people. but it was never about me in the first place. May you be lifted up and exalted, the gospel made clear. And Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would capture hearts today. That anyone hearing this message would connect with Jesus Christ as your Spirit applies his word Lord, this gospel is everything. And you've made it so clear to us, even in Old Testament passages in the wilderness. Thank you for giving us the New Testament to connect the dots. 
Thank you that Jesus did not come the first time to condemn but to save. Lord, I pray that every single one of us here would take hold of it, would take hold of that salvation and embrace your provision in Jesus Christ that we might pass from death to life so that when he returns and the condemnation is final, that we would be on your side. We pray these things in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.